Blog Talk Radio. Firefly Willows L.I.V.E. presents Evolve, featuring your host, Robin White Turtle Lisney. Okay, good morning. We are here today with uh, Captain Charles Moore, and uh, we're very pleased to have him on the show. Uh, this is Robin White Turtle Lisney, and this is Evolve. Welcome, Captain Moore. Good to be with you. Yeah. I wanted to interview you because of the work that you're doing out in the Great Pacific Garbage Continent. <laughs> that's yeah, what, that's, indeed. It is uh, as, as definitely as large as a continent. Yes, yes. And um, so could you tell us, uh, how did you come to discover this uh, Great Pacific Garbage Continent that's swirling out there in the in the uh, Pacific well, it was purely by accident, and it wasn't uh, a discovery per se. Uh, it was not an aha moment. Oh, you know, Eureka! I have found it. Here is the garbage. Yeah. It wasn't like that at all. You know, uh, uh-huh. this was just a sailor returning from a, a testing a new mast. You know, we had uh, been dismasted, bringing a vessel, a research vessel, back from Australia. Mm-hmm. We'd been dismasted by American Samoa, and we couldn't get a new mast put on there, so. We had to come back and get one put on here in the L.A. area, and then we wanted to test it. So the way to test it is to put it under stress. And and regular sailing, if you break something, you're doing something wrong. But in racing, if you don't break something, you're doing something wrong. So uh, we entered a race in order to put stress on this mast because uh-huh. I really didn't want to see it breaking again. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's a trans pack. It's from L.A. to Honolulu. And, and you don't, it's a one-way race. You don't come back the same way you go because you'd be going straight into the wind. Right. So you have to sail north and then hang a right turn. And and, and that's when we discovered the garbage patch because this was 97, the largest El Nino on record, and it was very calm for a whole week. Mm. And that gave whatever was out there, which is 100 times less than it is now, a chance to float the surface. And so... Uh, without, you know, uh, wasting a lot of time on deck uh, looking for stuff, I don't see stuff floating by. I mean, captain's job is to look around and see what's out there on the ocean. And uh, I kept seeing detritus of a civilization, you know, a bottle cap or a piece of plastic and something that just didn't belong there. And I knew it couldn't be, you know, a Hansel and Gretel situation where somebody left a trail of crumbs for me to look at. This had to be a phenomenon affecting a larger area. So I decided to talk to some scientists and get a method for measuring it and come back and and have a look at it. But really, it was just something that just didn't sit well with me, seeing this uh, bits and pieces out there, even though they were widely dispersed, and uh, not notable. I mean, I went back and looked in the log, and there's no notations. We make a note in the log every hour, and none of those notations are about trash. None mm-hmm. of them said, oh, we've found the garbage continent. That, that was not what we were dealing with. We were just dealing with an uneasy feeling that somehow our junk was making it out to the middle of the ocean and it just didn't belong there and we wanted to see how much was out there so i came back two years later and that was when we 
really made the discovery that there was six times as much plastic floating in the surface waters as the associated zooplankton. So that really set off alarm bells then. Then we really got excited in a, in a bad way Yeah. and uh, started focusing on, on plastic in the ocean. Well, <clears throat> after that trip, um, uh, 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 you had already a foundation, but could you tell us a little bit about your foundation and, and the research that you're conducting? I mean, because it sounds like uh, you kind of shifted the focus. You had the Agalita Foundation prior, but uh, tell us a little bit ab about the foundation and how that's now supporting uh, research in the gyre. Yeah, sure. Uh, I I had a, a, another career for 25 years uh, doing uh, restoration of uh, antique furniture and reupholstery and freight damaged furniture. And uh, I didn't, you know, I, I was always surfing during that time and, and skin diving and scuba diving. And uh, I wanted to, uh, and I, I just started to notice the, the quality of the water deteriorating. We were getting beach closures, you know. So many people living near the coast and sewage spills, and mm -hmm. and our giant kelp was disappearing. And so, I, rather than having another 25 years of other people's furniture, I decided to uh, shift gears and uh, begin a career in marine uh, research. And and one of the things that really was important to me at the beginning was making the connection between the land and the sea. This idea of urban runoff. That, mm -hmm. What uh, we call the urban swabber, you know, all the junk uh, from motor oil to pet feces to you name it, uh, that runs off the urban hardscape uh, right. in a rainstorm uh, was uh, killing uh, and damaging the the coastal ocean, mm -hmm. and, and we were also dumping our sewage in there and mm -hmm. and a number of other nasty chemicals. So. Uh, the giant kelp forests were disappearing. That's the rainforest of the ocean. And alga in Spanish means kelp. So I named the foundation Algalita, meaning uh, little kelp plant. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what I uh, work on. The connection between the land and the sea was the main focus of Algalita. And and our specific uh, job was uh, restoring the giant kelp. We had uh, engineers that made uh, uh, ways to spore the kelp and put it on tiles that we could then rubber band the rocks and make the kelp forest reappear out in the ocean. Mm, mm, and, mm. and we had some success with that, and other people are doing that now. Mm -hmm. Uh, unfortunately, the El Nino that we're having now is killing a lot of the kelp that's out there that we've transplanted. So, mm. kind of sad in that sense because it's so dependent on this uh, cool ocean water that's uh, being disrupted now. Uh, and, and we are seeing a lot of disappearance of, of the kelp forest. So, you're having an El Nino in L.A.? <laughs> Yeah, we had uh, form, uh, we, we we had the year without a winter. You know? Yes, I know we did up here too in San Francisco. So even in San Francisco, you felt that you really never experienced your regular winter. N not at all. We had maybe because we three, didn't. three total days of rain. That was that, and actually one of the total days was uh, the other night. <laughs> 
So un- yeah. unfortunately, no, we haven't had uh, a real winter. It seems almost like winter's starting now in a certain weird way, and here we are yeah. in April. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. So this this phenomenon of having this warm water and this uh, warm weather uh, is not healthy for uh, this giant kelp. The giant mm-hmm. kelp likes it cool and and uh, it does grow fast, uh, mm-hmm. but it, and it needs sunlight. But mm-hmm. it doesn't need the warm water. The warm water doesn't have as many nutrients in it. That's yeah. the problem. Uh-huh. You need the the upwelling uh, from the bottom to feed the kelp. And the warm water tends to put a cap on that upwelling uh, and prevent the uh, nutrients from reaching the surface. Uh-huh, so, uh-huh. so, yeah. Uh, so we we didn't give it up right away and go after plastic pollution. You know, we continue to work on that and, and work on the plastic issues as well. Uh-huh. Uh, but when we discovered how fast this problem was growing, and how little was known about it, and ha- and other people took up the torch and started doing the kelp transplanting. We kind of let that go mm-hmm. and focused on uh, plastic pollution. And mm-hmm. plastic pollution has a lot of ramifications, and I'm sure we'll get into it in the interview. But uh, we can't not talk about the human health aspect because it's beginning to become part of us now. This plastic pollution. Yes. Yes, and that's a big that's a big problem because look at all the cancers that are sprouting up. I mean, it's uh, it's got to be related, I would imagine. So, uh, I yeah. yeah, we'll talk about that when you feel it's appropriate. Okay, sure. So, so you shifted after ninety seven. Then you slowly shifted your attention from the kelp beds to uh, the plastic pollution and. Uh, what what have you what is where's the focus of your research? Has it been in the gyre or has it been along the coast or is it is it all part of the same? It's obviously part of the same problem, but yeah, uh, I can speak to that issue. Uh, the uh, initial reaction was, well, okay, there's a lot of plastic out in this garbage patch in the middle of the ocean, but. It's not happening here by shore. This is some isolated phenomenon, and and we really don't have to worry about it with our local fish and so on and so forth. So Mm -hmm. uh, we uh, rapidly, after that first discovery, shifted uh, to doing some work uh, on the coastal zone. We wanted Mm -hmm. to see if, because there's more upwelling, because there's more food in here, we thought maybe the plastic to plankton ratio would be less, and mm-hmm. indeed uh, it was. However, it was alarmingly high. It was like instead of six times as much plastic as plankton, there was one to two times as much plastic as plankton. Wow! So it it was less, but it was still alarming that there was more plastic than life. Yes, know? no kidding. Yeah. yeah. Wow! And so that was closer to shore. Yeah, we did one off San Gabriel River here, uh, right at the border between Los Angeles and Orange County, and we did one off Bayona Creek, a study which is uh, a, a, a river that drains downtown Los Angeles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, we actually found there in Bayona Creek area more plastic near the hovering near the bottom than we did at the surface. So we started looking not just at the surface, we started looking at the bottom and the water column, and then we also started looking... Uh, for uh, plastics in the sediments, 
uh, these things that, you know, about half of the plastic we make is heavier than water. So it's not going to float out to the middle of the ocean. It's going to sink and go into the sediments. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. So we we started finding areas where that's concentrated like uh, what well, we've did some uh, correspondence with an Indian scientist who had studied the, the sediment around the ship breaking yard. You know, when our big ships get old, uh, we don't dismantle them here in the United States. We send them to uh, third world countries where they break apart these old ships. They call it ship breaking. And they have markets for the metals and and the electronics and so on, but for the plastic, there's no real market, and the stuff is piling up, and it was like 10% of the sediments in the shipbreaking yard. Oh, my gosh. Wow, 10%. They have have, uh, really large tides. What they do, they actually have humans pulling the boats onto shore because they have 25-foot tides. So at, at the high tide, they can pull the boat up pretty high on shore, and then when the tide goes out, the people run out there and, take their torches, and with no safety equipment, people die there on a regular basis. Wow. wow. All kind of horrible industrial accidents. Mm. But uh, then they tear these boats apart. But the, what we're finding in our research is there's no market for used plastic. I mean, the only thing we, we do is where we have a deposit on the bottles, the number one plastic uh, that gets recovered, and some of the number two, the high-density polyethylene, gets recovered, and the rest of the stuff goes away. And, mm-hmm. and away turns out to be, in a large part, the ocean. Wow, wow. Well, I think that's so important for people to know about because uh, we've got to turn around the plastics industry, obviously. You know, like, what are they doing making, you know, stuff that lasts for centuries here? Uh, and, 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 and not providing any take-back infrastructure. You, right. You, you've created a new, for all practical purposes, this is a new kingdom. You know, there's the animal kingdom, the plant kingdom, and the mineral kingdom. This is the kingdom of plastic. And it has so many unique attributes that it really deserves its own kingdom. And it has to be uh, dealt with uh, yes. in a special way. And, yes. and we're not doing that. We're just treating it as... You know, this junk that you unwrap your food or, you know, unwrap your gizmo uh, and then throw away. Right. That's not going to, when you've got something that lasts forever for all practical purposes, that's not a satisfactory solution, this ambiguous away, throw away concept. Yeah, and the throw away concept is really, of, of all kinds of things, has just developed in the last maybe 50 to 100 years because it used to be people used every little bit of everything, even in my parents' generation. You know, during yeah. the Depression, they, they used every little thing they could find to make uh, to make life a little easier, you know, whether it's recycling bones for soup or... Uh, but, you know, if you have plastics, you can't do that. <laughs> it's not good yeah, for well, you. You, you rapidly, and I think a lot of it. Uh, I I really want to uh, to take a little of the uh, onus uh, and the and the bad vibe off the hoarders because a lot of these poor folks aren't truly hoarders. They just are overwhelmed by this plastic that is in it. It covers everything. It comes with everything, and you know, 
they may have grown up in this generation that, you know, conserved everything you have. This was the, in World War II, we had the Victory Gardens. We had posters in the post office that said, walk and carry packages, mm-hmm. uh, grow and share food, mm-hmm. and conserve everything you have. You know, you couldn't throw anything away. You'd have been reported. Mm-hmm. You know, aluminum was needed, uh, rubber was needed, everything was needed. Mm-hmm. And now we have this idea that we have so much, in order to be a good citizen, you must consume beyond your means or by uh, purchasing with credit, and then you have to uh, have that break and get rid of it and get a new one as fast as you possibly can. This is the, the this is the, uh, you know, the good citizen of the 21st century. Right, a planned obsolescence of everything, including extremely um, polluting uh, printers. I mean, uh, I used to have printers that lasted 10 years, and now they're lasting less than a year and a half, and they're all plastic, and they're all (laughs) non-recyclable. Yeah, Uh, we we have to have a a closed-loop economy, uh, we have to have the old printer become the new printer. We have to have right. the old car become the new car. We have to have the old iPhone become the new iPhone. Mm-hmm. This is doable. You yes. Know? Uh, yes. This is this is a technical problem, and right. we're very good at solving technical problems. Right, right. We're going to take a break, and we'll be right back. This is Pai Bubi with Canto para Yansa, a song to the wind. Oh, 
Evolve, nurturing the new in consciousness, the arts, and culture, with your host, Robin White Turtle Lizney. Evolve brings you people and ideas on the cutting edge of change, opening the shells of the past to move our culture into the now. We are all in great need of sustainable ideas for change. Evolve brings you the wise, the foolish, and the heart-based to help us meet the challenges of our times. Join us the third Thursday of the month at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, for Evolve. Hi, this is your host, Robin White-Lisney, and today we're talking to founder and research director Captain Charles Moore, who founded the Agalita Marine Research Institute in 1994. Uh, this institute protects and restores marine in, the marine environment. Captain Moore has become a world-renowned expert on the issue, as plastic debris should be seen as a number one threat to the planet. Moore won the 2014 Peter Benchley Oceans Award, Heroes of the Seas Award, among many others, and has been featured in major media forums, including National Public Radio, Rolling Stone, The Wall Street Journal, and The New York Times, NBC, CBS, CNN, The Late Night Show with David Leberman, Letterman, The Colbert Report, ABC's Nightline, and Good Morning America, and The Wall Street Journal. He's uh, published a book called Marine Pollution, uh, published in the Marine Pollution Bulletin and Philosoph- Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society. His book is Plastic Ocean in uh, June 2000. In Kamloops, Canada, bestowed a cap for a well earned doctorate of laws, honor, and we are so happy to have him. And we're going to continue with that in a minute, but I wanted to tell the people in the San Jose, uh, San Francisco Bay Area that Captain Moore is coming to this area from uh, Los Angeles area, and he's going to be speaking on June 22nd, Monday night at 7.30 uh, at Studio Bongiorno, uh, which is at 500 Lincoln Avenue in Santa Clara. And this is a free event, although we do ask donations. And he is going to be uh, talking and showing us a film about plastic pollutions and talking about solutions. So we're so happy to have him, and uh, I will continue with the show. I'm talking to Captain Charles Moore of the Agalita Foundation, and uh, we're going to continue our conversation now about uh, pollution and what we can do about it and plastic waste. So how many trips a year do you take to the gyre or do you uh, are you researching in the gyre or or the waters in different parts of the coastal line or how are you um, how are your is your research in Agalita Foundation now proceeding? Uh, uh the initiative we're beginning now is our coastal voyage initiative. We want to start getting students involved in doing the research in their own coastal 
zone. Mm -hmm. uh, we want to do some dating of the plastic, taking core samples mm -hmm. of the sediments, seeing how old the plastic is, uh, how long we've been polluting with plastic. Uh, we don't want to give up going out to the jar. We need, need to go at least once every five years to continue with our regular monitoring of this area. We're the only one that has this long data set with monitoring of the uh, deep ocean. You know, mm -hmm. This is a, a habitat that has its own unique qualities. I call it King Neptune's Desert Nursery. And it, uh, it's where baby turtles go to grow up. It's where baby fish of several species grow to grow up. There are no predators there. It's an oceanic desert. Mm. And, and so there's minimal risk for small creatures that take a long time to mature. Mm -hmm. And it's being destroyed by our trash. Mm -hmm. So we need to keep focus on that. We, I love the, the habitat. It's a wonderful place to just be. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like going to Yosemite. It's not the Yosemite of the ocean. It's a desert, but it's, it has unique properties. Uh, and oceanic deserts uh, are where juveniles go to mature. It's not like a terrestrial desert where the life is very sparse. There's a lot of uh, biodiversity there. Mm -hmm. It's just not big stuff. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. well, we have seen whales. We have seen sharks. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, you're there with these little planktonic organisms that are so... Uh, transparent and so delicate that you can only see them at night, uh, you know, with a, a light or watch them glow in the dark. Mm -hmm. uh, and and they have their own world out there. And, and the food that they would eat that's so sparse out there is now being consumed by hitchhikers that are rafting on all this plastic, the barnacles and sea mm -hmm. anemones and crabs and things that uh, are... Uh, consuming what would otherwise be the food for this unique biome mm -hmm. uh, it's now being uh, uh, ripped off by invaders from, you know, the coastal zone. Wow, wow. So uh, we do want to maintain that connection of, of doing that work out there, but we also want to involve more people in this idea. You know, this is a new field. There's no PhDs in plastic pollution. Yeah. Uh, you can't get a PhD in recycling, you know. I mean, we need to have universities dedicated to recycling and stopping plastic pollution, but we don't have that yet. So we need to train students at the low grade levels right. uh, to get into this and push for this kind of opportunity to deal with this new pollutant. So you have uh, school programs then uh, in uh, part as part of Egalita Foundation. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes. Well, uh, yeah. ma a matter of fact, they are, they're what keep us going because yeah. it's very hard to fund research if you're a small outfit like us, but right. you can fund educational programs. Right. So right. that's what keeps us going. Well, and, and education is what's really needed right now because not only education in a school level, but also, of course, in the plastics industry <laughs> and in, in so many other industries that are that are contributing to this. I mean, but uh, I can see the school programs would be just so fundamental because, uh, you know, there are new degrees that are being um, kind of invented by a lot of uh, schools. Like, yeah. you know, I, I'm here in Santa Cruz and UCSC has, a, you can make your own major and there are, people that are really interested, so interested in environmental studies, but uh, this particular specialty would be a really an important one. Yeah, I agree. Uh, 
uh, multidisciplinary is the way to go. Right. And uh, uh, pollutants of emerging concern, mm -hmm. diseases of emerging concern. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't deserve this. We are at the height of civilization, and we are being inundated with new diseases and new pollutants. This is not civilized. Yeah. We are not. We are not civilized. Right. Right. Well, and it it, it it it's so um, it's so uh, hurtful to to feel that we're killing the very planet that we all depend on. You know, like this is this is just uh, we have to stop it. So the school, tell me about more about your school programs. You have uh, different. Well, when you start with uh, what we call the DSI kit, uh, the uh, teachers uh, request the Debris Science Investigation Curriculum. And mm -hmm. so we send them a kit. This has uh, samples from the gyre, from the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. It has uh, curriculum. Uh, it has uh, analysis techniques. Uh, we let them separate the plastic from the plankton, look at some of the different kinds of plankton, uh, learn about the various issues. So uh, we have a, a full-on curriculum that no one else offers uh, on uh, studying plastic pollution. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Katie Allen is the director of our educational uh, programs, and she does a real good job of communicating with the teachers and getting them uh, started on this uh, new curriculum and getting them all the materials. It's free uh, because we do, can get these things funded. We can get our, our DSI kits funded mm -hmm. and our curriculum funded. So we're able to reach out and offer these a curricula free to uh, school teachers uh, all over. Mm -hmm. So that's a big part of what we're doing now, expanding uh, the DSI kits and the plastic pollution curriculum among uh, junior high and, and senior high mostly. Oh, that's great. Now, what are what does DSI stand for? for uh, Debris Science Investigation. Ah, okay. Great. Well, I think it's really important the work you're doing, and you know, I wish every school would know about it because I think it would be such an important. You could have an upwelling of the young people that are coming up, you know, getting uh, involved in this. So, then, yeah, of course, that's, that's the goal. That's part of the yeah. goal. Yeah. And with the uh, with the younger kids, we do the uh, uh, the trash audits. So we go during lunch period and. We get the tarps out on their uh, field, and, and all the trash from lunch, we spread it out on the tarps, and then we get them to sort it, and then we quantify it, and then we get them to try to reduce uh, what they can from that trash. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. uh, we do have uh, programs for uh, elementary school as well. Mm -hmm. Great, great. Well, it's wonderful to hear that uh, because I, I feel like a comprehensive program uh, are you pretty much uh, distributing these in the L.A. area, or are you distributing them? Uh, mostly state of California so far, but uh -huh. we're, we're, we're thinking of expanding the, the DSI stuff uh, uh -huh. outside of California. Yeah, great, great. Well, it's such such an essential uh, education program. I mean, I, I can see, you know, how that could really impact the industry in the in the long run, especially the plastics industry. And hopefully, uh, are there are there any? Um, this is a little uh, off some of our questions, but are, is there any activity going on like lobbying the plastics companies to change 
their formulas so their this stuff will be bio, biodegradable or biofriendly. Is there any? Uh, yeah, that's a couple of issues there. Uh, one is uh, expanding recycling and you know simplifying production so that you know if it's not recyclable you don't make it and right. and, and that requires a lot of simplification of of the formulas that go into making the plastic. Mm-hmm. The other is. Uh, biodegradable and marine degradable. They're two separate degradabilities. Marine degradable is much different than simply biodegradable because biodegradable is degradable in a compost pile which gets like 140 degrees Fahrenheit, has a lot of bacteria, fungus, and insect. There's only one insect out in the ocean that's a water strider. It's not doing a lot of breakdown of materials. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a cold environment out in the ocean. You're not anywhere near 140 degrees Fahrenheit. You're, you're, you're rarely ever 90 degrees Fahrenheit and, and, and never over 100 except extremely isolated situations. So mm-hmm. you don't get that kind of heat that will help you break down the materials. And then uh, you don't have a lot of fungus out there either. Uh, mm-hmm. So really just bacterial breakdown. There are uh, Compounds, the polyhydroxyalkanoate is one uh, that is a marine degradable plastic that can be used for a lot of applications and, and should be, but it costs more. So mm-hmm. they're, they're not getting, it's very difficult for these marine degradable plastics to get their foot in the door when they cost more. Any innovation requires subsidies, and so far, we haven't made a case strong enough that, you know, government is subsidizing this. They're all about subsidizing the latest, you know, battery or the latest solar power thing. And they're not really wor- worried about pollution so mm-hmm. much. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, we need to make a stronger case against pollution, although they have come around a bit on the carbon pollution. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, we're kind of not on that uh, menu that... Uh, you know, the menu of uh, being uh, as dangerous as climate change, although I think more animals are being killed by plastic pollution than climate change right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so biodegradability is fine if it's only going to be on land and never make it into the ocean. Right. But, you know, you don't. You only want stuff that makes it into the ocean to be an accident anyway. Right. Because accidental loss, is uh, going to happen. Uh, you don't want a marine disposable plastic, though, because the ocean doesn't need nutrients. Basically, anything that's degradable is, is nutrients. Uh, and, uh. and the ocean's already getting too many nutrients, especially in the coastal zone. That's why we have this eutrophication, why we have moss growing on everything, you know, why you see green uh, on the mud flats. Uh, that's from too many nutrients mm, mm-hmm. in, the, in the ocean. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You don't want it, just because it will degrade in the marine environment, we don't want it to be disposed of. In the I see, I see, sure. So really what it is is for, is, is for accidental loss, or for, you know, especially important in like fishing and, and aquaculture. I'm starting to get really concerned about uh, farming of seafood. Yes. Yeah. Uh, they use so much plastic in the farming of seafood, and that's about half of what we consume now is farmed seafood. Yeah. And lose a lot of their gear, and that's not taken into consideration. Like the Monterey Bay Aquarium has uh, duck clams as a sustainable choice, uh-huh. but 
in my work in Puget Sound, I've found, you know, lots of these uh, tubes that they protect the clams with, lots of these nets uh, in the environment uh, killing animals and mm -hmm. damaging the habitat. So mm -hmm. uh, really it's not uh, a very sustainable choice to have clams that are produced with all this plastic that gets uh, lost out into the environment. Right, right. Well, and then the nets, a lot of the nets, uh, that fishermen are using are are plastic, aren't they? Some of the uh... Uh, virtually all of them are these days. Uh, yeah, yeah, and those break loose. We have some natural fibers, hemp, sisal, vanilla, you know, but we don't have those anymore. Mm -hmm. um, now what we have is nylon and polyethylene and polypropylene. Mm -hmm. Those fibers are very persistent in the marine environment and break down into fragments eventually and, and become ingested. And that's where we can segue into the uh, human health issue is the degradation of traditional plastics. Biodegradation means it goes away. It becomes carbon dioxide and water. Mm -hmm. But uh, the um, uh, permanent plastics, the plastics that really take a long time to degrade, they become fragments. They become molecules of polymer. They just become these little bits. And those bits, you know, the main kind of feeding that goes on in the ocean is not animals with eyes and that see things and then chase after them and eat them. That's what fish do. But that's not really what the most creatures in the ocean are, are doing. They're just bumping into stuff or they're filtering large amounts of seawater and mm -hmm. getting whatever planktonic organisms are in that seawater. You know, uh, even the great whale, the, the largest animal ever to live on Earth that still exists, which is the blue whale, uh, it filters seawater for food. It mm -hmm. eats little things. Right, you know? right. Uh, and, and, and so what happens with all this plastic in the ocean is it turns into little stuff that mimics the traditional food of everything from the great whales down to uh, the tiny uh, mussels and clams and shrimps at the bottom of the food chain, mm. even the worms. Mm. Mm. And, and they're starting to get plastic in them. Now our research uh, partners at Mary, the Marine Environmental Research Institute in Blue Hill, Maine, they're finding from five to ten plastic particles per gram of muscle meat and oyster meat, even wild or farmed, it doesn't matter. Wow, wow. That is really important information to to think that they're finding that much in in anything that's being farmed in the sea or that that's being... In a wild caught, too. And the average, a study was done on uh, shellfish consumers in Europe. Mm -hmm. That the average consumer ate 11,000 pieces of plastic per year. Oh, my heavens. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So this is a lot. Uh, and, and what this plastic does is it releases pollutants to the person that's consuming it, and it becomes part of the tissue. Uh, you know, it, it lasts a long time inside your body. It's not like it just goes through and gets spit out. It can become part of the circulatory system because mm -hmm. they're so small, these I mean, that's one of the ways we deliver drugs, right? There's right. Uh, special uh, polymers that dock at different receptor sites. Right, so, right. Uh, it, it's not as if uh, plastics aren't 
you know, part of medicine. Uh, mm-hmm. They are. And, and so what we're doing is we're carrying this uncontrolled medical experiment on in the ocean of feeding plastic to everything. Right, right, right. And, and it's carrying pollutants with it. It's hydrophobic. It holds on to oily pollutants. These oily pollutants uh, are some of them legacy pollutants like PCBs and DDTs. Mm-hmm. Some of them are new pollutants like the PBDEs, the, the new flame retardants that were supposed to be better and replace the PCBs now are turning out to be worse. You know, they don't have regulations that when you replace something bad, you have to do it with something good. You know, yeah. That, yeah. You can replace something bad with something bad and then find out later it's bad. And then it's worse than the first one. <laughs> yeah. And in many cases, like with the PBDEs, it's worse. Or with some of the substitutes for bisphenol A, it's worse that a scientist went around collecting everything that said BPA-free, you know, because people don't want this bisphenol A leaching out of their uh, consumables. And he gathered up everything he could find that was BPA-free and tested it and found that it was more estrogenic, meaning it acted more like the female hormone estrogen uh, than the BPA. Wow. So, yes, you can have worse uh, situations with replacements for bad things. Mm-hmm. Uh, that That's a loophole in our uh, uh, regulatory uh, framework that needs to be addressed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, I'm kind of reeling from that information because what that means, I mean, estrogen uh, can create a lot of cancers. Um, too much estrogen can create too much, a lot of cancers. And I, I know uh, in my family we have a history of breast cancer and that breast cancer is uh, largely estrogen. Uh, the estrogen receptors are what actually creates the cancer i mean it, it it encourages the cancer in the in some women and um uh so that's a big problem because that means possibly that that estrogen yeah. estrogen plastic that's going into our bodies could create more cancer is that correct that's a non-scientific yeah, view you know when i think is uh well-meaning women and i uh, i live right by where they do a lot of these uh race for the cures where they wear the pink ribbon, you know, and and they'll get up there and go on a jog and, and, and race for the cure. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, they really ought to focus on prevention rather than cure. Right. Uh, this is not right that the modern woman faces, uh, such a high percentage of risk that she's willing to have her breasts removed in order to not uh, have the potential of getting cancer, that to me is anachronistic. That doesn't belong in the 21st century. Yeah, uh, yeah. And the reason we we have got to this point is we've allowed uh, industry to ride roughshod over the general population in yeah. the name of profits and and uh, a, a, a bullish stock market. Right. We've uh, sacrificed the average human being. Right. And I think that that's that's the real crux of the issue that we've put profits before people in so many different ways, but especially in the plastics, you know, the god of convenience has become a more important god than uh, than any other, really. <laughs> you know? and, and and I and everybody in the United States, you know, the majority 
vast majority believe in God, and they just don't realize that God is now convenience, that that's what God, <laughs> that God is represented by convenience, and they believe in that God, and so our job is extremely difficult, because uh, no matter what our faith is, uh, we appear as atheists when we attack the, the God of convenience. Right. That's exactly right. And really what we're trying to do, I mean, what I see your work and certainly bringing this attention uh, to this work, is it's really about, like, wait a minute, uh, you know, the natural system was working before we messed it up. <laughs> Can we get, get back to some kind of way where whatever we use is recyclable and renewable and and can not harm the earth but actually feed the earth or support the earth in some way. And that's the concept. I think that's where we are. That's the paradigm shift we have to make uh, in order to survive at this point. So, I mean, not just survive, yes, but, but, but uh, really thrive it, in the world. Yeah. But so many people take that in a, a Luddite context of destroying technology, when really the, the liberation from technology requires technology. Yes, I mean, yeah. We can't be liberated from this convenience because why because that is part of human liberation is mm -hmm. liberation from toil we don't want that i mean i'm into a lot of hand work but you know it's hard on my hands mm -hmm. and i i make my own tortillas out of corn that i grew and you know i make my own juices out of the fruit that i grow and i mm -hmm. I, I do a lot of kind of uh, old-fashioned things but i i always wish there was an easier way you know mm -hmm. i mean i want to use technology i want people to invent uh small scale which is what's happening mm -hmm. uh small scale industrial type operations for local production mm -hmm. and, and so technology will liberate us from toil it will give us the opportunity to create food shelter clothing and energy locally so that we don't have to import it so we don't have to use a lot of energy for transportation mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it will allow us to uh, create plastics uh, that, that have an afterlife that uh, play the infinite game as uh, William McDonough says in his book Cradle to Cradle you know that uh, we do mimic the natural uh, uh, infinite uh, recyclability concept mm -hmm. but we do it on a highly technological basis mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mhm. Mm yeah. Well, and I just feel like the uh the technology can help us, but it has to be directed in a whole different way, away from profits and more for uh not just humanity, but also for support of the biodiversity that we really need to have on the planet. Uh, in can, order I say, can I say right on, sister? <laughs> you can say that. That's good. <laughs> okay. We're going to take a break, and we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Robin White Turtle Lisney, and I'm your host on Evolve. I wanted to share with you a few of the things that I'm doing beside the radio show. Uh, you can always go to my website, www.thecenterforthesoul.com, and that is www.thecenterforthesoul.com. And you can learn about all the things that I offer, including readings, healing work. Uh, I'm a medium, a psychic. Uh, I'm also an artist and an author. You can check out my books. 
the most recent ones are called Poems for the Lost Deer, and the other is called Heart Path Handbook and Energy Medicine Guide. Uh, both these books have been published this year in 2014. So I just wanted to share that with you, and now we'll go back to the show. This is Padre from Brazil. This is Armante Cigano. We're we're listening to Pai Bubi. He's a musician from Brazil, and that was uh, from his album Cantos Guaricianos, and that was Armante Segano. And we're talking to Captain Charles Moore, who is founder and researcher of the Institute, which was founded in 1994. Captain Moore has become a world-renowned expert on the issue of plastic debris, which he views as uh, really being a number one threat to the planet. Uh, Captain Moore has been seen on public radio. He's been interviewed in the Rolling Stone, the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, uh, NBC, CBS, CNN. He's a world-renowned expert in the area, and uh, he has a book called Plastic Ocean. Uh, and this June, uh, June 2015, on the 22nd, which is a Monday night at 7.30, we're going to be hosting Captain Moore uh, at the Studio Bongiorno in Santa Clara, uh, California. And we're very excited about this because we also have an exhibit called uh, uh, Plastic Paralysis, which is an exhibit of artists' work bringing attention to the gyre. And we hope uh, a a lot of people can come join us, and we uh, extend that invitation to all of your listeners, all of the listeners. So um, we're going to continue with the interview now, and thank you for listening. And this is Robin White Turtle listening, and the show is evolved. Welcome back. Welcome back. We're talking to Captain Charles Moore of the Agalita Foundation. Uh, the Agalita Foundation does research on uh, plastics pollution, and he's a pioneer. And so we're returning to the conversation. Then uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the conference that you were in in Atlanta. Um, Was this just on the gyre, or was this uh, a conference on plastics or uh, pollution? Or uh, Tell me about that conference. Well, uh, it was actually organized by a distinguished professor of arts at uh, Georgia State University, Pam Longobardi. Uh-huh. who has uh, the Drifters Project. For years, she's gone over to the Big Island in Hawaii and removed scraps of netting and other detritus and made it into art objects. As uh-huh. a professor, she's shown it all over the world, and uh, she just wanted to bring artists and scientists together. Uh, artists use this material because it's there. It's just it's overwhelming, and they have mm-hmm. to do something with it. Right. And scientists are starting to realize that, you know, it's got serious problems. So it's only art that can bring the warmth 
and understanding to science that, you know, uh, people can grasp. Right. So uh, it's a very smart way to deal with this is to bring people to see this incredible artwork and then have scientists explain to them what's going on, mm -hmm. with why there's so much of this stuff around and why we're ha having to uh, create artworks out of it because it's just freely available in so many different venues. You mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. So this was uh, uh, a opportunity for in industry to be there. There were representatives from uh, Carpet uh, Square uh, people that you know make those square uh, carpet tiles that uh, use uh, all recyclable recycled carpet, and there was people there that are involved heavily in uh, sustainability and, and, and managing waste, mm -hmm. and then there were scientists that you know the, the Mary Institute I talked about, the Marine Environmental Research Institute in Maine. That research was uh, given at this conference. That's where I got the latest uh, information mm -hmm. from our colleagues there at Mary. Uh -huh. and, uh, and it was also supported by some uh, big uh, names, like uh, Ted Turner's daughter was oh. uh, supporting it. We had, I met her and had dinner at her home. And uh, she has the Captain Planet Foundation that supports our DSI kids. Oh, great, great. Great. Uh, now, uh, we were able to have the final meeting at the Center for Disease Control, which was kind of nice to finally get. Uh, we, we didn't really have their staff there so much, but just being there and having their auditorium and giving this presentation about plastic pollution at the Center for Disease Control, you know, that made me feel like at least, you know, we were able to say that we brought it to their attention. Yes. You know, that, that yes. this is potentially a vector for disease right. that needs to be looked at. Right, absolutely. Uh, and a very, uh, very significant one. So, wow, that's fantastic. So, was there an art exhibit there? <laughs> yeah, a, a wonderful uh, art exhibit there. Uh huh, uh huh. Great. Our exhibit was they, they put their whole uh, floor, uh, one section of it, to this art exhibit. Uh, mm -hmm. Beautifully done. Great. Uh, amazing. Some amazing pieces there. That's fantastic. And, of course, you know, uh, we're having a show in San Jose as well to do the same thing, to bring attention to the gyre and also to plastics pollution. And um, so and we're looking forward to having you come and speak at some point. Um, I think this, the artists are one of the ways that th this information is going to get out there because uh, we have to draw attention to these things. Um, and, you know, yeah. it, is, it is readily available. Artists have always gone to what's uh, inexpensive materials to use, and if you can get them from the ocean, then that's one way to, that's one way to express it. Uh, yeah, there's yeah. uh, Unfortunately, they, some of them can be enormous objects, like uh, the Washed Ashore Project uh, does uh, these huge uh, animals out of, of plastic with uh, holes drilled in it with wire put through it. Uh -huh. um, they put them together into amazing sculptures. So, yeah, everything from small pieces to enormous pieces can be fashioned from trash found on the beach or mm -hmm. even in the street. And uh, it, 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 the, the function of art is to break with the status quo. It, even if it depicts the status quo, it abstracts it. Yes. And uh, allows someone to inspect it uh, free from 
it's immediacy. Right. And that's the importance of art, is to uh, radically uh, break with uh, our everyday experience. Right. And, uh, so I'm definitely supportive of people trying to do that, uh, uh, you know, uh, expressing uh, through art the shock and outrage uh, of uh, the artist at the state of reality today. Right, 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 right. And to think of this as the plastic pollutions in the ocean as, you know, another element that we have to deal with that we've created. I mean, it's completely created by humans. You know, that that concept is still kind of rattling through my bones as we've been talking over the last uh, 45 minutes or so that how we're really creating a whole nother culture, uh, uh, environmental culture that we're going to have to deal with, with uh, all of the breakdown of those plastics. And now they're embedded in all the fish. And um, that's, that's not even a, that's just a such a new concept. It's kind of blowing my mind that we are actually creating a whole nother um, biosystem with the plastics, really. Yeah, it's uh, extremely alarming. And you know the old saying: if you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. Right. Uh, we are doing it to ourselves. Yeah. Uh, but we are unable to change. Uh, powerful forces with amazing technology and. Uh, truly absolute surveillance and, and repression are able to break any movement to radically change the status quo. So we're, we're left with art and science to, uh, you know, bide our time until we have a mass base uh, enough to actually uh, change things. And, and because we need to preserve the technology, because we can't, you know, imagine a life without uh, convenience, uh, we have a very difficult road ahead of us, uh, yes. so those of us who want to see radical change. Right, right. So how many scientists do you, um, do you imagine or do you know are studying plastics pollution worldwide? Do you have any idea of that? Yeah, we've actually helped uh, uh, get interest in that and, and collaborated with other scientists. So mm -hmm. we have, uh, uh, I would say, seminal uh, nodes of scientific work in Japan, in uh, England, in uh, the Netherlands, um, and in Australia, I would, uh, and New Zealand. Mm -hmm. uh, there are scientists there, South Africa also, I have a colleague, Dr. Peter Ryan there. I didn't name all the, the various doctors there. Uh, but I could. Uh, Dr. Hidashige Takada in uh, Japan, mm -hmm. um, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Thompson uh, in uh, England, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, Andres van Franeker in uh, the Netherlands, works on the northern Fulmars. He's actually got it to the point where the European Union now has set targets for 2020 to reduce the amount of plastics in the northern fomar, which is a bird like uh, an albatross, you know, the same sort of family, oh, uh -huh. uh, that they monitor the plastic content of them and doing it for so long that they can, you know, 
uh, kind of judge how much plastic is in the ocean by how much this bird is eating. Mm-hmm. And after reducing that, uh, uh, you've got uh, colleagues uh, on the East Coast that I mentioned studying uh, the plastic fibers. Uh, also, UC Santa Barbara scientists uh, there are studying the plastic fibers. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, we've got the uh, people in Australia and New Zealand studying uh, birds and, and uh, plastic pellets. One of the first scientists to really look at uh, the raw material of the plastic industry, these so-called nurdles, the pre-production plastic pellets, the plastic resin beads that are so common in the ocean. Dr. Gregory uh, from New Zealand was in the first one uh, to look at that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Dr. Labors in uh, Tasmania, she looks at the birds on Lord Howe Island. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, uh, uh, there are quite a few uh, scientists now. It used to be I would search through the literature and maybe find one or two papers a year on plastic pollution. Mm-hmm. have to get one or two new papers every week. Wow, wow. Well, are you having any international conferences? <laughs> that- uh, that seems we, like we, one way uh, to bring attention to the issue, anyway. We, we were the first to have an international conference on the microplastics, the, the breakdown products of these, all these things. Uh-huh. Um, and there have been some marine debris conferences. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, but as far we're, we're now at the point where we want to have a conference on solutions. Um, right, right, right. Uh, and one of those solutions, it used to be, you know, we're all focused on prevention, and, you know, beach cleanups were nice for awareness, but they, you know, you could go back and clean up the beach the next day and it would be just as bad. Right. So it's obviously not a solution to clean up the beach if, if the next day it's going to be just as bad. Right. So uh, still, I found so much waste, and I'll, and I'll uh, go through a program when I come to visit you. Hopefully we can do a, a, a little video. Uh, that I've prepared uh, for your art uh, space. Yes. That uh, will show just how bad it is out in the middle of the ocean now. And, yes. And it's so bad that I think, you know, you can clean up as much out there as you can on the beach. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think uh, expeditions should be mounted, especially paid for by the plastics industry, to get out there and get some of this stuff to preserve this habitat. Yes, yes. But that's just being destroyed out there by our trash. Right, right. And is so it, it, we'd like to have a conference uh, to vet proposals to get it out of the ocean. Uh-huh, uh-huh, to get it out of the ocean. Uh-huh. Now, are there more than one gyre in the world? Uh, uh, I was... I was uh, looking at maps, worldwide maps, and it seemed that there are several different gyres in different oceans around the world. Um, are they all swirling with plastic in them? Yes, uh, increasing alarmingly. Uh, the re- most recent reports uh, in science, a paper by uh, Jambeck et al., uh, said that if things stay the way they are, uh, in 10 years, by 2025, it'll be 10 times worse. Wow. And that 10 times worse means that instead of uh, 8 million tons a year going into the ocean, there'll be 80 million tons a year oh. going into oh, the ocean. Man. 
And my research indicates that this is not a far out estimate because I think I think our results will show uh, from this latest voyage that in the 17 years, 18 years since I've been looking at it, uh, it's gotten 100 times worse. So every 10 years it gets 10 times worse. That means in 2025 it will be a thousand times worse than when I discovered it in 1997. Wow, wow. That just that information is so important uh for people to hear um because we've just got to the, the urgency of this is really clear to me. <laughs> this is really clear. I think that's the point that I try to make uh is that we're in an urgent crisis uh just like, you know, Climate change, uh, when you hit by a tornado or uh, a severe drought like us or flooding like they have or probably will have in the east now after all that snow. Right. Um, and, and other parts of the world that have similar problems, that makes you urgently demand change. Yeah. And, uh, so, you know, here we are in the best of all possible worlds. Uh, with Tesla motor cars and uh, iPhones, and yet it's the worst of all possible times. Yes. Uh, so uh, we have a tremendous contradiction to deal with, and uh, people are not used to dealing with contradictions like that. And yeah. it's very difficult to get that kind of thinking into the mainstream. Right, right. It's a, it's a huge paradox, uh, paradoxical time we're living in, that's for sure. What are some of the cleanup efforts that are underway at this time? Do we have any um, any solutions for this? Because it sounds like it's a very complex. It's it's not just about picking it up, is it? Because it, it's in the ocean now. So how do we well, how do we begin to think about cleaning it up? Well, uh, it, it's only being done coastal in the coastal zone now. A very a few uh, people are cleaning up in their coastal waters. Uh -huh. But the deep ocean is a whole other ballgame. Yeah. Uh, probably uh, no one's doing it. Uh, certain people have proposed doing it, but no one has carried out any attempt to mm -hmm. do it on a large scale. Mm -hmm. And part of the problem will be dealing with the hitchhikers I mentioned, the barnacles and the sea anemones and so on, and the other forms of life that are out there naturally, like the Valoa Valoa, these saline jellyfish that are sailing on the surface of the water that would be gathered up in any kind of a net or anything, mm -hmm. or any, any kind of a system would block their movement. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, uh, you know, what are you going to do with it after you get it? Uh, okay. Rather than pick it up and bring it in, it probably makes more sense to process it out there and use it as fuel for the ship. It makes a a low sulfur crude when you heat it up in the absence of oxygen, mm -hmm. and you can then refine it on board to make a kerosene or something, diesel fuel, something to run your boat. So that kind of technology is available now. Oh, wow. A company in Japan that will, uh, if you've got the money, you can uh, recycle number two uh, and number uh, four, uh, plastic uh, in your kitchen and get kerosene out of it. Hmm. You know hmm. mm -hmm. uh, that the Blessed Corporation, B L E S T, if you want to look them up. Uh, but uh, you know these solutions uh, 
that's practical on a large scale, uh, but they can be. That's a technical problem. So mm -hmm. um, here we are with all kinds of technical expertise, and we're using it for the wrong things. We're using it for symptomatic relief of uh, new diseases so that, you know, every uh, major TB program is paid for by the pharmaceutical industry that is not making cures for anything. Right. Uh, they're just making uh, symptomatic relief for things with yeah. a lot of side effects. So right. that's a waste of our money. Yeah. Uh, right. A waste of our energy and our technical expertise. I would agree. <laughs> yeah. Well, now, I'd like to hear about your books. We haven't touched on them yet, but you have some publications that you've uh, that you've done. Can you talk about about them? Yeah, I, I principally do scientific papers. Uh, my most recent one was for the Tulane Environmental Law Journal uh -huh. called uh, 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 "Rapidly Increasing Plastic Pollution from Aquaculture Threatens Marine Life" because uh, mm -hmm. I'm concerned about aquaculture proliferating without any standards for equipment. Uh -huh. Especially the plastic equipment. Uh -huh. uh, uh, my book is called Plastic Ocean. It tells the story of uh, discovering this uh, uh, eastern garbage patch and then uh, following up with research and, and finally a chapter there on the human health effects because uh, many of these chemicals in the plastic and the chemicals absorbed by plastic are estrogenic and will result in. Um, feminization and in females result in making super females. For instance, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Jörg Ullman does work on European freshwater snails and he found uh, that they make more eggs when exposed to these chemicals. He, even, he just had these control snails in pure water. He put them in a bottle of uh, mineral water, just, you know, your bottled water, and they made twice as many eggs as the controls. Oh, wow. So the, you get uh, super females making a lot more eggs, but not as healthy, and you get males who shouldn't be making any eggs making eggs. Wow, wow. Hmm. All right. Uh, anything else? Because uh, it's getting towards 11 o'clock now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, uh, I, I look forward to uh, to meeting you in person, and thank you so much for this interview. I think it's going to really help our listeners uh, be more educated about the issues of uh, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch that's out in the on the ocean, and also about the harm of plastic pollution. So, yeah. thank you so well, much, Captain Moore. I appreciate our interview. Uh, great to be with you, and I look forward to uh, uh, sharing some more information uh, with the attendees at your uh, art exhibition in June. Yes, and we we have uh, already are doing a lot of things on the environment, so there's a there's a whole audience that we're priming for this. So we should be uh, packed to the rafters. So that'd be great. great. Okay, we're, thank you. All right. Thanks bye -bye. so much. Bye bye. So we've been talking to Captain Charles Moore of the Agalita Foundation. And we will be having an exhibit at Studio Bongiorno, yeah, 500 Lincoln in Santa Clara. Uh, and Captain Moore will be speaking on June 22nd. We're very excited to have him be a part of the exhibit and the show. And this is an art exhibit that we're hosting. And uh, we hope you can join us. It starts on June 12th, the exhibit, and it runs through July 3rd. 
So on the 22nd, Monday night at 7.30, Captain Moore will be speaking and in person. So if you're in the Santa Cruz, Santa Clara area or San Jose area, you can come and join us. Okay, thanks, and thanks for listening to Evolve. Thank you for joining us. This program was brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. We hope you enjoyed the show. This is Deb Carousella. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for our live on-air call-in show, Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m.